Today's episode of Mission Impact is a little different. As with episode 33, where I had on Stephen Graves and Peter Cruz, this is another in the series that I did with Peter on diversity, equity, and inclusion. I worked on a short project with him and new family obligations in the form of his son and my grandson and new career directions meant that we just did five interviews in five episodes. I'm featuring these on my podcast feed and while each of the people that we talk to in this series don't necessarily focus on the nonprofit sector, there's a lot to learn from each conversation. Today Peter and I talked to Nathaniel Benjamin. Nathaniel is a graduate of Johns Hopkins University, University of Baltimore, and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. His career has been in human resources, working in the C-suite level, managing workforce planning, strategy, policy, and talent management with a special focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. So this week we have uh, Nate Benjamin. Um, how you doing, Nate? I am well. How are you, Peter? I'm doing real well. Um, halfway there, halfway to feeling like very, very well. <laughs> so for, the, for our audience, could you introduce yourself and, and your professional background? Absolutely. So I'm Nate Benjamin. I am, um, I have been in the industry for about 17 years. I've worked in the space of human capital as well as inclusion, equity, and diversity. I do uh, small projects with my business, Benjamin and Associates Consulting Group. But from a full-time perspective, I am a senior executive for a federal. Um, and, and the industry that you're talking about is diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? Hence, hence your presence here. <laughs> uh, um, I think one, the first question that we want to uh, start off with is, um, so I've been recently unemployed uh, due to budgetary cuts as a result of COVID. Um, and have been trying to make the switch over to becoming a diversity, equity, inclusion professional and having that be like my main function. Um, but in my like search, um, I kind of find that uh, these roles exist in different departments, you know, whether in a for-profit space, government space, or nonprofit space. Um, and but mostly they require some human resource experience. Um, so in your from your perspective, do you think that DI strategies and their rollout and you know that whole part of their infancy um, belongs or, or should be responsible for human resources or probably live in a different department? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think part of it is I, I do think it depends on your organization. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I do think that based on organization, there are times where it should be aligned with your human capital or human resources programs. Um, but then depending on the organization, maybe things that are going on, um, culture as well. There are times where I think that DNI should be aligned directly to your, you know, to your senior leader, CEO or uh, your operator. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that they belong somewhere together. Mm -hmm. I will tell you where I don't think it belongs. <laughs> if I can go there, um, I'm always against it being within the equal employment opportunities because okay. you have this organization that is focused. Um, oftentimes, it, an EEO is a, is a needed function, but it's very compliance, and I is very you know this is a part of the organization. It's culture. It's what we're supposed to be doing, and so it impacts your human capital. So you have to be able to take it out of a compliance exercise 
and put it in a place where it can stand alone. Um, and if it's and if it is within human capital, it should still be a function that's supporting your overall human capital strap. Because diversity is about your people and it's about the experiences that these people leverage. So for me, if I were to create like the perfect organization, I always at, you know, your human capital in terms of your process. Then you look at culture, you look at engagement and belonging, and then you look at diversity. And all of those areas together to me is the the, the strongest framework to create a human capital-centric uh, culture. Um, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think some of my personal experiences that, that the, uh, the human resources staff at an organization are, is very minimal. Um, and they are responsible for a multitude of different things. And to add on diversity, equity, inclusion on top of that just doesn't seem to, to work at all. <laughs> um, right. So in, in kind of like... Um, I agree with that. Yeah, so kind of going like backtracking, um, is, is it more of a development and training type of function that this should live? Um, just so it promotes that internal exercise and then, you know, build those internal muscles that we should have. So, so I think there needs to be partnership with your learning and development group, Mm -hmm. but I would, it should live there at all. Um, generally I always look at learning and development as a part, still as, as a subset of your human capital. And then if you diversity and inclusion under learning and development, you would devalue the actual program because you're saying that it belongs under two layers under your human capital strategy. Mm. So for me, I would want to see either diversity and inclusion equal to your human capital or infused into your human capital. But to put it lower in the organization, it sets a tone, even if that's not the intent. And then going back to something you said in terms of the human resources generally being understaffed, which is a common issue across the industry. But if an organization is committed to diversity and inclusion, then they have to be able to um, find the resources to best support it. Because DNI should not be an ad hoc responsibility. It should be a part of your organizational plan. And so when you have your, whatever your mission is, your human capital strategy is going to align to your overall organizational mission. And if DNI is missing from that, then you're missing the opportunity to hit the mark when it comes to whatever your mission-centered um, focus is as well. So we can't put it in like a backroom activity. Mm-hmm. It needs to be on the forefront and it needs to have the experience. Yeah, in terms, and it's in, you know, to really have it infuse throughout the organization, not just throughout the human capital strategy, really is talking about, uh, in in most cases, I would guess, um, some sort of culture change. And mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's a, that's a huge endeavor. And I was, I was listening to another podcast where the person talked about, um, I, I'm always listening to Brene Brown's podcast. So it was probably one of hers. <laughs> and uh, she was saying the how, you know, if, if they're going into an organization and working with an organization, if the um, HR folks, if DEI is not infused, and if the HR folks are not on the leadership team, they're not working with the organization because that structure alone just shows how it's either valued or not valued. Correct. And and even adding into the, the human capital strategy, diversity and inclusion needs to be a part of every segment that you have in human capital down to your performance management. You know, if you break out the layers of human capital, you know, you have, you know, things that are dealing with your executive space, your cultural engagement and belong. Um, you have your performance management, your employee relations, your labor relations, all of these subsets of HR. And you have to infuse the DNI into that. So for instance, you have supervisors who don't necessarily know how to manage a diverse work, right? 
So how are you holding them accountable, but then how are you also giving them the tools to be successful? So just that sentence alone, you've talk, we've talked about diversity and inclusion, learning and development, and performance management all in the same. So mm-hmm. if you stop diversity and inclusion and separate it from human capital, you have a disconnect. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it, I, speaking for myself and I probably Carol as well, like being, you know, an entry level brown man and, and ex- really experiencing that when you have people who don't share your perspective or from a different generation or from a different workforce generation, I would even say, um, just have a difficult time connecting and, and not really, I guess, uh, being so open uh, with feedback in general, <laughs> um, which kind of, you know, and I think we'll talk about this in a future episode, but kind of forces you to assimilate in different ways um, that would be a detriment not only to your career, but also to their, their progress and furthering uh, themselves and trying to become a better leader or et cetera, et cetera, whatever they're looking for. Um, the question, my next question, because it kind of seems like we're, we're kind of leaning towards that now, um, for organizations or for-profits that may be starting this work and in, in kind of a response to 2020 in general, um, and the previous administration, um, they're starting to establish DNI uh, entity at their organization where it's going to live, and I think that's we kind of touched on that already. With what, where not to put it? Um, uh, whether where what are some signs uh, that you would recommend, or not signs that you would share that uh, they are on the right path, um, that the work that they are starting out to do seems to be working, um, and what are some things that uh, they would probably want to avoid. Uh, when beginning this work? Yeah, so um, good question. I think it still goes back to the culture of the organization. And I mm-hmm. think the way to be able to know where you're going and your progress is to incorporate your feedback, right? So what are ways that you are assessing your org? Because what works for, you know, organization A might not work for B, but mm-hmm. you have to be able to truly do some type of feedback mechanisms and assessments. And so for instance, you know, there are, uh, are activities that, people use that I've used, such as state interviews. State interviews are a great way to know what's going on in the pulse of your organization and ensuring that questions that you have within your state interview are aligned with the segments of, you know, either areas that you want to see future growth in or areas that you have concern in. And so if you have a state interview that has 10 questions, how are those questions linked back within your organizational strategy, right? Looking back into your organization. So if you're looking to see, you know, how how um, competitive are we with pay? You want to ask questions that are compensation related. If you're looking for inclusion questions, then you want to make sure that you're asking questions that can best measure um, the, the, um, the inclusion response of those within your org as well. So I think state interviews are a great way. They're, they're super easy. And they also show that you as an organization have a commitment to your human capital and you're not asking the questions when people are walking out the door, mm-hmm. but care about you now. And I want to see your success. And so give us feedback to tell us what we can then do. Um, I think, the, go ahead, go ahead. I think people are I very was, familiar with the exit interview. Yeah. Uh, can you say a little bit more about what the stay interview is? Yeah. So the stay interview, it's really a pulse check. It's, and, and you can decide at what point you want to have it. So for instance, if you want to do a state interview at six months, so you joined the organization in January. Now it's June. I want to do a pulse check with you to see how things are going. 
And then I want to be able to assess this data based on this information. And that information is what you're seeking out. Now, what you also have to do, which is extremely important, is not just to do the state interviews, but what are you going to do with the data, right? Because if people um, don't trust that anything will be done, then they're not going to be receptive in providing the feedback. Mm -hmm. So it's important to be able to say, this is the information that we've captured over X amount of time. And so from this amount of time, this is information that you've told us. We've heard these are actions that we put into place as a result of what you said. And what that does is it fosters um, it fosters buy-in and more people will be prone to be responsive because people know that their words help result into um, changing or at least shifting organizational culture. But in the human capital space, if you lose someone, right, if you're losing your employees, the amount of time to be able to backfill the position, with, um, uh, fused in with the amount of time that it takes to train someone up to the proficiency level of the person that was in the organization before, that's dollars, right? So you can look at what those dollars and what those costs are, and that can range from anywhere from 30 to 60%. And so if an organization wants to be able to best keep their knowledge management within the organization and to be talent, then the best way to be able to do this is to be able to um, leverage your people, keep your retention low, and be able to foster an organization that is inclusive and hears the needs of. And this is different than a like a you know three month probationary period where you know your supervisor just brings you in just to see how whether or not you're sufficiently getting used to everything. It's it's really getting a deeper knowledge and understanding of that. It's kind of like a it's kind of like a, a reverse evaluation, like a three sixty evaluation at that point, right? It's like how they are looking back at you, if, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of that, but you're looking at it from from the organization, so it's more macro than my. And so from a three sixty, you're looking at it where you know what is the feedback from my peers, what's the feedback from my you know my uh, my boss, and maybe what's the feedback of someone that's one level below. This is looking at the organization at large. And so if this is Peter Cruz Enterprises, how does Peter Cruz Enterprises work? Because there might be 10 different um, uh, 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 offices or sub-organizations, but how does the organization work? And so you're not just doing the state interview just for your boss and for your staff. You're doing it and you're trying to measure this um, across the organization. What also happens with state interviews is that you're able to then get the data so that you can do comparison um, breakouts as well. And so for instance, if you have 10 organizations and nine of those organizations have, let's say, less state interviews because the attrition is low, and then you have one office where the state interviews, we're doing more of them because there's a revolving door. And then we're getting data that shows that these are some of the same issues that we are reporting every time someone comes in the door. We now may be able to use the data, well, we will be able to use the, uh, the data to identify things and particular problems that may exist. There may be, um, it may not be the result of a supervisor. It may be business practice. It may be, you know, uh, 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 we're not using really the smart use of technology. There may be different reasons why people are staying or going, but you're taking the time out on the front end to diagnose what issues you have 
so that you're treating the disease and not the symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I, well, first I want to say like, I, now I need to get a, a, a square space or something for Peter Cruz Enterprises before like someone else takes that. Um, <laughs> but uh, how, how regularly should these uh, types of state interviews occur? Right. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to the, it depends because you really mm-hmm. want to look at the organization, right? If you have a turnover of, you know, if the average FTE stays within your organization for 18 months, then you probably want to do it sooner than if you have an organization where the normal churn is five years, maybe you don't want to do it in the first three months. But I would say that that's where human capital and diversity and inclusion uh, have to have to come together because you, you got to look at the data from the human capital systems perspective to understand like, okay, attrition is telling me this, right? So that's a human capital. Now, as a diversity expert, what is this data suggest? And so now that I have this data, and it's suggesting perhaps that when we look at our state interviews, that this demographic um, is unhappy in X, Y, Z in the third. Well, why are they unhappy with X, Y, Z? So at that point, the next step may be, okay, I'm seeing that this demographic is experiencing these challenges and is likely to look for a new job within the next six to 12. So maybe I then do a deeper dive and I do a focus group. And that focus group comprises of everyone because we're inclusive. But in that focus group, let's kind of like hear a little bit more. And maybe it's bringing in that third party or that outside facilitator where people will be more candid and open and not have the feelings of, you know, there's any type of retribution should they speak. And then that information is then taken, it's synthesized, and then leaders can now say, okay, I have, it's not just anecdotal, I have this information that shares that this is what's going on within my organization. So as your diversity, you know, leader, how are you now championing your senior leaders to invoke change? And then that helps you drive your strategy. So that's why, going back to what I said before, human capital and diversity have to be merged because there's so much overlap. Diversity can't do it by itself. We can't use diversity as a way where, okay, we're coming up with programs or we're coming up with ideas, but what is your strategy linked to? Because if you don't have the connection to your human capital programs, then you're doing activities for the sake of doing activities without ensuring that there is a clear strategy for your work. This probably echoes as to why this type of work should not exist within a compliance-driven role because it requires so much flexibility. Correct. And, and I will tell you, I have lots of friends that have it in their <laughs> compliance role and, you know, and, and, and I appreciate it, but I, I you know, if you're asking me for my opinion, I think that I think the graveyard for doing um, I think we have just one more question. Uh, Carol, do you have anything to add on? No, I mean, I think it's, you know, my experience has been with much smaller organizations. So HR, you know, if there's even an HR person, unfortunately, they've been, you know, up to their eyeballs with just the compliance stuff. So um, <clears throat> any kind of looking at culture has had to be a whole, a whole organization kind of thing, just because the numbers are so much smaller than I think uh, what you're talking about. Um, but I, you know, really moving and even, you know, over time, it could be that the, the, you know, the wording changes around calling it human capital or calling it human resources, since that in many ways objectifies people and makes them objects just like machines and software and all the other things rather than who they are people and, and what we want as a healthy culture in an organization. So it'll be interesting to see how those things shift over, over the next couple of years. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, it, uh, the uh, I've seen titles now shifting to more like chief people officers. And I just think that's such, I mean, it's kind of, you know, snazzy, a little cool, if you will, but it's really 
encompassing what we do in this space. Like everything is about the people. And if we don't have the people, you don't have your mission and you're not going to get your bottom line. So um, I agree with you. I think that um, in, in, in an ideal world, I love like titles when I see uh, chief people, engagement, inclusion, belong officers. You know, those are the things that we really ascribe to do, not necessarily look at, you know, transactional, you know, just resources and capital. Again, you objectify it. Yeah, and it probably, um, it feels kind of um, maybe, uh, I don't know, hip or whatever right now, but I'm, I'm, my, my hope is that uh, over time it will just become normal. Um, speaking of over time becoming normal, um, the last question I have um, kind of is ingrained with um, educational nonprofits and educational institutions. Um, what have, you know, being that we've seen and have become more and more increasingly aware of how COVID specifically has impacted, you know, disproportionately neighborhoods of color, public schools of color, or predominantly. Um, and what do you see from your experience and from your expertise may be long lasting effects from COVID in regards to facilitation and delivery of, of, uh, of lessons, et cetera. Um, we'll start there. Yeah, it's scary, yeah. it's scary. Um, my concern, and, and I see it, and you know, I have, I have children as well, and they're going through the pandemic. And, you know, and interestingly enough, my, my wife was able to, you know, stop working and she became a full-time um, homeschool uh, parent slash teacher. And so I sit, in, educationally, I sit in a seat of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. We're, educated, you know, we could give up one income and be fine and our children are thriving. But that's one story out of probably a hundred where, you know, we're watching particularly, particularly black and brown people who have to not only still work during the pandemic, but are working on site. And so when they're working on site, many of their kids are sitting home and they're left to their, it doesn't matter how good their kids are, they're left to their own device. And so when you look at the, 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 one, the lack of resources within Black. And then two, when you look at the absenteeism that's occurring because parents are at work and children have to stay at home, the long-term effects of this is going to be crucial because one, who's going to fail children during a pandemic? No one. So you're going to have children that are passed along and that are going through the system that are inadequately equipped. And so what then happens? You create a pipeline of children that are missing the functional and technical skills that they need in order to succeed. And so then what happens when we get to 11th and 12th grade and SATs and COVID's behind us, but the educational gaps are not. And so then you have people who are ill-prepared to go to college, might uh, may not go to college. Um, families are disproportionately impacted and may not be able to afford college. Um, and then when they get in college, you're systemically taking some of those challenges. And so what ends up happening is you create a gap really between the haves and have nots. But those that are mostly impacted are those that are on the lower end of the financial total. And unfortunately, we see that black and brown people are more represented in that space. So it's not whether or not they can. It's um, a pandemic has um, completely stretched the uneven playing field that already exists. And so what then happened, you know, 10 years from 15 years from now, we look at the workforce and do we see people who. Um, are more diverse in equal playing fields, or do we see that there are less people who had less opportunities during this time? So, so I say that all that to say that I'm nervous. I am. I, I've seen it before the pandemic. I worked for an organization where we had, and I'll give you this quick example. We had an unpaid internship program, and it was a very reputable organization. But most people that were black and brown did not um, come into the organization, not because they weren't qualified 
what it was because who is going to be able to give up four, four months of their summer not making any money only for an experience in Washington, D.C., where rent and everything else is, you know, above the national average. So there was this separation of who got the opportunities at that point, who got the connections, who could be able to bridge into opportunities once they graduate versus those that couldn't. So now you couple COVID on top of that, you couple that um, um, black and brown people will be disproportionately educationally impacted by that. And you see a system that is not good. You see a system that's good. So there are organizations that are trying to mitigate that. Um, you know, of course, people are coming up with businesses, of course, where, you know, there's more um, educational, you know, um, tutoring and things like that. But like when we go back to that, who's going to then be able to pay for it? Yeah, Yeah, the ripple effects as you lay them out. I mean, it's just, you know, it can be weak. And obviously those gaps and and impacts were happening before the pandemic. And of course, it's just it just made it so much worse. Um, And yeah, we'll be we'll be seeing the ripple effects. And and unfortunately, um, the U.S. is not very good at history. Uh, We're very good at forgetting real quickly uh, what happened. And so, um, yeah. That's so brilliant. Yeah, because my second part of that question was like, if there are any positive things that have come from it, like, what do you think will like will, will stick um, moving forward? Like, will uh, being if uh, accessibility is important, like maybe remote learning, like blended models still exist in twenty twenty four? Like, who? Um, but being that you know, like what Carol just said, we don't we, we tend to like forget about the immediacy and like kind of go back to normal because that's always like what we're seeking. Um, but normal, yeah, as we, you mentioned, wasn't great to begin with. Right. And, and, and even with the hybrid learning and the different um, forms of doing that, yes, you know, there may be educational advances that occur, but there's still, there, it's the ripple effect. So mm-hmm. since with the future of work and the future of education, things may be more digital, but then what happens to the businesses that thrive on those, you know, either schools or, you know, anything else that was closely, um, um, to that close to that location. I mean, we look at DC, right? You know, DC is half of DC is boarded up. And why is it boarded up? Because small businesses, especially can't make any money because everyone is in the future of work. If you so, then what happens to school? The same exact thing, you know, and who's impacted if you have less schools because you have a virtual model, you have those, you know, the cafeteria and the janitors and all of those different people who now they don't have a job or a place to clean because, you know, you shut down buildings and it impacts your real estate as well. So, you know, I could go on and on and on about it, but it impacts everyone. But we got to look at the data to see who's even greatest impact. And we know what the data is going to show. Well, um, that that is all true. And and we try to we try to end on a on a positive note. So I'm curious. <laughs> what what you're what you're looking forward to what you're um, what you're hopeful about um, as we move forward in this next year yeah so I'm gonna flip it because I do actually like the glass to be half full um, I am excited about the future I am excited about the smart use of technology I think technology is going to do something for this for this world in, a, in in something that we have never seen you know the fact that we can have this podcast and we're doing an interview, you know, at 11 o'clock and I have a briefing at 12 o'clock and I have a meeting with clients at one o'clock and I'm able to do all of this literally from my home. I mean, you know, before COVID, literally driving from or flying from or going all of these places and really extending and burning our state. So I think that organizations have the opportunity to 
to if, if, if you seize the smart use of technology in the correct way, and you also are focusing on the culture and the health of your organization, I do think that there are going to be extremely positive uh, ramifications and impacts. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm absolutely excited. That's what I mean. I am as well. I mean, it, it seems like a, it's a great time to progress. And like, this is like a, you know, I think with a lot of change that has instilled, been instilled over the past couple of months and there's still like a hope, like everyone's optimistic at this point, right? We've just been so severely impacted for from impacted from the last year that it's it's kind of kind of hard to be a pessimist at this point <laughs> uh you just got it just to, like to motivate you you have to be optimistic um i think that's it for today so thank you so much nate thank you for joining us um like you mentioned yeah, you, you so have much. a thing in a couple of minutes we are not as important but thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule <laughs> to to speak with us uh, and share your perspective and your insight. We we truly appreciate it. Thank you. I, this was a pleasure. I appreciate right, thank it. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. So I thought it was really interesting um, how he talked about, you know, how when when organizations aren't necessarily doing it well, um, kind of diversity, equity, inclusion is kind of over in a corner or a separate um, a separate initiative. And although sometimes I think that's where organizations have to start because you can't really infuse something if you if you don't even know what it is. Um, but a bit, you know, it, it, but it needs to be pulled into that larger um, framework of how you're working with people, how you're building your culture, how you're being intentional about all those things for it to really be long lasting and not just a one off and a kind of check the box. Was the idea of and it's something that's open ended is how do we regain the trust of those communities that have been negatively impacted? Um, I feel like that exists everywhere in every single uh organization nonprofit or corporate um how how do you make sure that people are open and, and are receptive that that seems to be like a an ongoing conversation an ongoing dilemma because of how deeply rooted and systematic our racism is our sexism our homophobia is and how ingrained that is in in our culture so um, I feel like we'll we'll probably touch on that in every single episode. And I mean, I think oftentimes there is some kind of insti- instigating incident that that um, you know will, will kick things off if there hasn't been attention to this in the past. And um, whether it's internally, uh, you know, someone looks at that data and no, and you know, crunches the numbers and sees that. Um, turnover is just way higher for people of color than it is for white people in the organization, let's say. Or, you know, now where there's just these things going on in the wider world that that um, are making organizations wake up. Um, but it's also interesting to, to not, I think, for those organizations to not think that they're starting over and that they there's data, there's probably data there that, that's been collected, maybe not intentionally for diversity, equity, inclusion, um, initiative, but there's data that has been there. People have been telling them things that they maybe haven't been listening to. So for them to go back to that 
and and just look at you know what's already been said versus doing a whole new data collection uh, process. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, well, I think that's it for this week's episode. So if you'd like us to attempt to answer one of your diversity, equity, inclusion questions or scenarios um, for us and our guests, please feel free to send those to culturefitpod at gmail.com. All right. Well, I, these are big issues and we could we could go a lot further, but we're just going to try to do it in bite-sized pieces. All right. We'll see you next time, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with our guest, Nathaniel, as well as my co-host for this episode, Peter Cruz, and the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at Mission Impact Podcast slash show notes. Thanks to Nora Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing, as well as April Kuster of 100 Ninjas for her production support. We'd like to hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. Until next time.